Well, it's a great joy for me to get to be here and look at a passage of this nature. It's also a great joy as an American to get to preach in an English church. Not just any English church, our church, which for me is a great joy. Now, when we come to the book of Nehemiah, one of the great things God does with the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah as a person is he presents before us one of the great examples of leadership in the history of the world. I know CEOs in Silicon Valley who look at Nehemiah as a great example of leadership. I know pastors in America that would talk about Nehemiah and his book as a manual of leadership. Likewise, here in England, I've met many pastors who have the same view, that this book is one of the great handbooks on leadership. So when you turn to Nehemiah, in the future, I want you to have two words in your mind, just so that you know where to go down the pike whenever you're encountering challenges in your life. For rebuilding, and rebuilding spiritually being the most important part of that, Nehemiah is a handbook of rebuilding, and Nehemiah is a handbook on leadership. And so tonight, last week we covered the topic of rebuilding spiritually, when you have been broken. So we looked at that at the end of 9 and all the way through 10. Tonight we're going to look at leadership. Our passage is about leaders. There are really interesting tidbits in this passage about leadership. And so we're going to design our evening around a fundamental question. The question is this. So what does godly leadership look like? Many of you are young and you're kind of going, well, this is an interesting thing. When you get to be my age and you have a few white hairs in the beard for you men, you'll understand how important this question is. What does godly leadership look like? That's our question for tonight. Now, one thing I also want to do by way of context is I want to talk with you about what it's like to go to the old city of Jerusalem. Can we do a quick poll? How many of you have traveled to seen the old city of Jerusalem? How many of you? Three of us, and we're all in the same family. Okay. <laughs> so let me take us on a quick tour, and let me commend to you, may you all see the old city of Jerusalem before we see the new Jerusalem. It's a great place to go. When you go to the old city of Jerusalem, there are basically four levels where you interact with the city. And the first time you ever lay eyes on the old city is a day you will never forget. For me, it was in 1994. And I remember looking at uh, the Haas Promenade, looking down at the old city. And I got to tell you, I got choked up because you see before you this place that you have read about or heard about your whole life. And then when you go to the city, there are these four levels. You start at the at the above the city level, when you can walk the ramparts walk, which is basically taking you around three of the four quarters of the city. And I'm talking about the old city now. It's a crusader wall that's about 20 to 25 feet high, and you can walk around the top and look down into the Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Muslim quarter. So you see it from kind of a bird's eye view. That's the rooftop level. Then you go down to the street level. And on the street level, you tour this amazing living bazaar in the Muslim quarter. 
that is so full of sensory stimuli that will boggle your mind. Colors and spices and people haggling. It's amazing. And then you go to the Christian quarter and you can walk what's called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of sorrow that traces the path that Jesus took through his passion. It's an amazing thing to do. And then below the street level, 15 to 20 feet down, is the level of the archaeological diggings. When you get down to that level, you walk on the very pavement that Jesus Christ walked in the Roman era. And then just a little, a few feet below that, when you're in the Jewish quarter near the western wall, you go down to the diggings and you can stand before Nehemiah's wall. You can see with your own eyes the very stones that we talk about here. And I will never forget, I I had taught Nehemiah, and I'm standing there looking at the stones. And I realized that every one of those stones was put there by real people. That every single one of those stones matters. That every single one of those stones was put there with blood, sweat, and tears. With guys with a sword in one hand and a trowel in another building the wall. And it's stirring. And then there's the level below that. And that's the level of King Solomon's quarries where you can go into the quarries from which the stones of Solomon's temple were hewn. So when you go to Jerusalem, go to all four levels. And when you go there, visit the two coolest places of all, the two gardens, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden Tomb. So the reason I wanted to start that is to say, when we study a book like Nehemiah and we study the rest of the Word of God, every single story that we read about happened in history. This is not mythology. It's history and it's truth. And when we turn to the word of God, we have the greatest historically accurate document from the ancient world. But it's not just from the ancient world. It is rivetingly relevant, even in a passage as challenging as the one we read tonight. Now, last week, real quickly, just by way of context in terms of where we've just been biblically, Last week, the nation had, after the great prayer of chapter 9, had reached an amazing juncture. And it was a moment of truth in the whole history of the Jews. And like many cultures since, when a moment of truth came, the leaders said, we need to mark the moment of truth by signing a serious document. In June of 1215... Magna Carta came to be at a similar juncture. July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence came at a similar juncture. And when we contemplated this, I don't know what the theologians call Nehemiah's document, but I submitted a name for consideration that we should call it the Declaration of Dependence. Because the nation had its back to the wall, realizing that centuries and centuries of national history meant centuries and centuries of unfaithfulness and failure. And their only hope to rebuild and last was to cling to the God who alone is the faithful keeper of covenants. If they had any hope of keeping their side at all. And so when we looked at at rebuilding them, we found that they rebuilt spiritually because it's easy to build in brick and mortar. Much harder to build spiritually with tools of the heart. And so we realized there were basically two steps in the rebuilding process. Number one, we rebuild at the first step by his lordship. 
lordship has got to come first. And then we rebuild by his life in absolute dependence on the life in us for every step thereafter. That's what we covered last week. Now, I do want to commend Matthew for reading this incredibly long passage. This passage is quite daunting. I've been looking at this passage for months, but I've got to tell you, after 30-odd years of walking with the Lord and teaching the scriptures, I love passages like this. You know why? Because the Word of God is a great enigma, and it's so difficult at first blush to see what the heck is good in a passage like this. When it's so flippin' hard just to pronounce the names. And it's like, we all deserve a t-shirt. You know, we survived the reading. (laughs) And yet, over the years, see, the way God designed His Word was to be a puzzle. And as you study the Word of God, the great pearls of wisdom are embedded here, but they're not intuitively obvious on a first reading. So you got to sit with him and you got to ask him, Lord, where is the gold here? And trust me, there's gold here. When David saw this huge guy in the valley taunting the armies of the living God, he decided to step out of obscurity and into leadership. His first step was that he ran to the battle. I love that part. Once he was down in the valley with Goliath, the next step was to find a brook and stop at that brook and reach down and glean from that brook five smooth stones with which to slay the fearsome giant. We're going to look tonight at five smooth stones of godly leadership that will help us to slay one of the giants that stalks the modern church. And that is fleshly, ugly, power-driven, controlling leadership. Because you know what? If the church of Jesus Christ had leaders that led based on the passage that we're studying tonight, the church would be leading the culture instead of the culture leading the church. And so tonight, we're going to look at Five smooth stones of godly leadership. Now you might be saying, Dorman, where are you getting the idea of leadership in this passage? All I'm going to do tonight is step through Nehemiah's thought flow. If you look at the first phrase in this passage, what does it tell you? The first phrase in this passage is this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. The word leader or leaders appears five times in this passage. Even a cursory reading will tell you this passage is enumerating the leaders who lived in Jerusalem. This passage is about leadership. And so we're going to now sit under this, but you can rest easy. I'm not making this stuff up. It comes right from the word. And all we're doing is verse by verse stepping through the thought flow of Nehemiah. Okay? So... Five smooth stones of godly leadership. Let's look at the first stone. Verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed 
I know NIV says commended, but the word here in Hebrews is the classic word for blessed. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads, yada, yada, yada. In verse 2, we step into a deep and rich biblical stream of truth. It's called beginning with a blessing. Our first smooth stone of godly leadership is that godly leadership begins with a blessing. So where am I getting this from? Turn with me quickly to the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. You're going to see God exhibiting godly leadership in his new creation that he has just made. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, quietly embedded between two mammoth towers of biblical truth and often overlooked is this precious little phrase, and God blessed them. Do you realize the very first action of God toward man was to bless them. The word bless means to endue with power, to be able to do that which is asked. Thank God the order of 28 is not reversed. Thank God the command did not come before the blessing. Because in the heart of God, what he wants to do, the very first thing he does toward his newly created man and woman is that he blessed them. He wanted to endue them with power so that then when he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, they had the wherewithal to do it. So the heart of God in his creation, in his godly leadership, was to begin with blessing. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If we go to Matthew chapter 5, we see another godly leader beginning in a precious way, his earthly ministry. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ, when he looked upon the multitude, and when it was the moment for him to sit down, and rabbis only sat when they delivered the most important messages of their lifetime, he sat to deliver the constitution of his kingdom as the king. And the first word out of his mouth was blessed. Because his first thought was to deliver a word of precious encouragement and love to a nation being ground under the iron boot of Rome. Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry with a word of blessing. Now turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul the apostle, the great leader of the early church, wrote what many commentators consider to be his two greatest works, his magnum opi. This circular letter 
to the churches of Asia Minor that we now know as the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans, largely considered Paul's great works. Listen to how he begins in Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Yet again, beginning with blessing. Only this blessing is a beautiful symbiotic response, giving the blessing that God gave in the garden back to the God who gave it in a beautiful symbiosis of blessings given and returned. But so often through the biblical text, there is this stream of literature that says godly leaders begin with a blessing. And here we are in Nehemiah chapter 12 and we see, or chapter 11, and we see in this chapter this amazing little verse in verse 2 that actually, if you think about it, sits really totally apart from everything else. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. A new era is beginning in Jerusalem. So we would not be surprised biblically if it begins with a blessing. So the first stone of godly leadership is that godly leaders begin with blessing. And blessing is really about making others feel at home, caring about others more than about yourself, looking to encourage and, and, and have a word that is for them. Godly leadership begins with a blessing. And we see this in the scriptures, and we saw it again here in Nehemiah 11 too. You could contemplate that principle for the rest of your life when you understand the heart of God toward us. He always wants to bless. Thank God that's the case. So that's the first stone. Now let's look at the second stone in verses 3 and 4. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And some of the sons of Judah... And some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. Now, Nehemiah chose to begin his list by focusing first on the tribe of Judah. And it's not just any part of the tribe of Judah, but it is the family of Perez. He could have started anywhere. This is where he started. Why does he do this? This start is entirely intentional on his part. Because when you understand who Judah was in the history of Israel and who Perez was and what line they were in, you realize that Nehemiah begins the list of leaders by recognizing the royal household of Israel from which Messiah would come. This was the first family. Where do we learn this? We learn this from Genesis chapter 49 all the way through in Jacob's great blessing of his sons. Go back quickly with me to Genesis chapter 49 and we will look at 
uh, verses 8 through 10 here, I believe. It's your last couple of chapters of Genesis. There we go. So Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Basically what's happening here is Jacob is about to gather in his feet and die. The last thing he did is he called all the sons together and he gave them a blessing. And in this blessing slash prophecy, he clearly elevated the tribe of Judah above all others. Real quickly, I think if you want to understand why, read what I would call the Judah and Joseph narrative of Genesis 37 to 50. And you'll see that Judah actually offered his life for his brothers, which is an interesting foreshadow of the one who offered his life for us all. And I believe that's why Judah was elevated. So listen to this real quickly. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. This is Jacob doing a word play on Judah's name. The name Judah means praise in Hebrew. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So see, when Nehemiah started with the line of Judah and he focused on the line of Perez, what he was doing was elevating the line of the Messiah. Quickly turn with me to a passage we studied this morning with Dan, the first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And you'll see the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you'll see in that genealogy two of the names here. This is why we study this stuff. Because once you see where it fits in the overall, you understand why they did what they did. So here's the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. 1-1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. So by focusing here in verse 4 on Judah, and specifically the line of Perez, what Nehemiah was doing was something very intentional and very much revealing where his heart was. He wanted to give the messianic line of his coming Lord first place in the list. He wanted to put the Lord first. And putting the Lord first and giving him preeminence in everything is what I would call lordship. So he put the Lord first in the list. That was the whole point of this. By faith, he said, let's start with the royal house because there's a king coming that'll last forever according to the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. The king is coming and he's coming through this line. And so that's why he lists him first. So the second smooth stone of godly leadership is this. Godly leadership means putting lordship before leadership. So by listing that first, Nehemiah is saying, I'm going to give the Lord first place. 
all through the scriptures when you study leadership, and I've been studying leadership very intensively the last five years, all through the great leadership passages in the Bible, you see this interesting stream where lordship has got to come before leadership. In Joshua chapter 5, we're going to see this when Dan takes us there. Because what happens when they're on the eve of conquering Jericho, there's a guy standing over on the side with a drawn sword. And Joshua doesn't know who he is, so he walks over and he goes, "Who? So who are you? whose side are you on? And the guy turns to him and says, No, I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Joshua, the great leader came face to face with the Lord. And basically Joshua dropped to his knees and removed the sandal from his feet because he was on holy ground. See, before Joshua could become the conquering leader over Jericho, lordship had to happen and he had to bow the knee to the Lord. That's what happened in Joshua. You see the same principle illustrated in Mark chapter 10, greatest principle or the greatest chapter on leadership in the Gospels. Before leadership comes lordship. And you see it in Jesus Christ's life flow. Consider the fact that in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, God had him on exactly this program. When the devil took him up and offered him all the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus Christ continued to quote scripture and put his father first, the issue of lordship was being sorted in the life of our Lord himself. And it was only after Matthew 4 was done and the test was passed that he sat down in Matthew 5 to deliver the constitution of the kingdom. See, before the king can constitute his kingdom, lordship had to be sorted, even for our Lord himself. Nehemiah is articulating a very profound principle here. Second stone, second smooth stone of godly leadership before leadership comes lordship. You could contemplate this principle for the rest of your life. Now let's look at verses uh, 6 through 19. This is the challenging section. This is name after name after name after name, isn't it? This is the tough part. (laughs) But there's something that's interesting here. Did you know that Nehemiah painstakingly With every single group he lists, he enumerates the total number of leaders in that group. Let's look at this. Verse 6. Now all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468. And in Hebrew it says brave men. I love this. 468 brave butt kickers. Okay. Then in verse 8. That covers the sons of Judah slash Perez. Verse 6. Now the sons of Benjamin. And in verse 8, the number. And after him, Gabai and Salai, 928. Then you go down to 12, 13, and 14, and you see three groups. And their kinsmen in 12 who performed the work of the temple, 822. In 13, and his kinsmen, heads of fathers' households, 242. And 14, and their brothers, valiant warriors, 128. Then you get to 18 and 19 when he enumerates the Levites and the gatekeepers. 18, all the Levites in the holy city, 284. Also the gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their brethren in verse 19, who kept watch at the gates, 170. 
2. What is the point he's making? The point he's making is an incredibly important leadership point. Every person matters. He enumerated them because every single person matters. And I think we glean a principle from that. The principle of godly leadership from this third smooth stone is that godly leadership honors every person. Paul does the same kind of thing when he, when he takes this kind of thinking and this beautiful heart and he moves it forward to consider the body of Christ when Paul is writing on his spiritual gifts literature in the New Testament. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's single most extensive treatment of this subject in the three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But I want you to focus particularly on 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Listen for the logic that we saw in Nehemiah. Now these are the variety. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you see how Paul is saying every person in the body of Christ matters? The same way that every leader in Jerusalem flipping mattered. Then we go to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's other great uh, section where he is dealing with this. There are three parts of the New Testament written by Paul that touch on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, 1 through 8, and Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, to each one, his phrase both in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians here, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, to each one. See, godly leadership both in the old city of Jerusalem with the, with the leadership being in place to carry the nation forward and lead the rebuilding process, every person, every leader mattered. Likewise, in the body of Christ, the great thing about being in the body of Christ is that every person matters. I mean, right now our church is on the cusp of something really exciting. There's a possible building that might go forward. Whether the building goes forward or not, the vision to bring the love of Christ to East Oxford is flipping exciting. And guess what? Every person is going to matter in that process. And I can tell you, I sat in a leadership meeting this morning where the leaders are going, we need help. And I'm going, this is when it gets exciting. Because the leadership is not meant to be only in the paid staff. It's meant for all of us too. To know our spiritual gifts, step into them, and go for it. Every person matters. And so this third smooth stone of of godly leadership is that godly leadership honors every person. And here's the real key to this principle. Godly leadership honors every person before and above it honors itself. Godly leadership honors every person more than the leader itself. You could contemplate this principle for the rest of your life. Now, 
Just a quick thing as an idea when you come to one of these long list passages or any passage in the Bible that is super patterned like this, what you want to look for are the pattern breaks. Because when the pattern breaks happen, that's where the authors have ingeniously hidden some of the coolest truths. There's one pattern break that happens actually three times similarly in this passage. It's one of the coolest things about this passage. I got fired up when I saw this. What is the pattern break that I'm talking about? It appears three times. In Nehemiah 11.17, in 12.8, and in 12.24. Let me read these. 11.17. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader... In beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. I'm reading through the list and I go, that's cool. And then I kept reading. And then I got to 12.8. And the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. He and his brothers. I'm going, that's doubly cool. Then I got to 12.24. And the heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers opposite them, to praise and give thanks, as prescribed by David, the man of God. And then I'm going, isn't that cool? Three pattern breaks, three times, The crucial leadership principle that godly leaders are to lead in thanksgiving from beginning to middle to end. Godly leaders are to actually be the ones leading in the thanksgiving. What an amazing concept. Beginning, middle, and end. Nehemiah could have identified a thousand different things about these leaders and their responsibilities. The one thing he identifies three times is leading in thanksgiving. And then just in case we forget the weight of this point, he pulls out one of the great heroes of the whole Hebrew scriptures, right? Look at the end of 24. Talk about nailing the argument. Look at this. With their brothers opposite them to praise and give thanks as prescribed by none other than David, the man of God. Who himself was the living example of this, right? David led in thanksgiving. Half the Psalter is written by David. He led. By the way, the book of Psalms in Hebrew, you know what it means? It's called Tehillim, which means praises. David led the way in praising. And the day in 2 Samuel six fourteen, when he danced before the Lord with total self-abandon. He danced before the Lord, leading the nation on the day that the ark was installed in Jerusalem. What a butt kicker. And see, godly leadership is supposed to look like that. However, I got to tell you, when I'm hanging around most spiritual and religious leaders, most spiritual leaders I've met are pretty guarded about things like emotions and praising and thanking God. Oftentimes, they kind of stand on the back of the, of the room and arms folded. Not giving much, but waiting for people to come to them. 
And I got to tell you, that's not what godly leadership looks like. Godly leadership is saying, you know what? We want to lead the way. We want to lead the way in Thanksgiving from beginning to middle to the end. Nehemiah, who wrote a handbook on leadership, chose to highlight this. And I think we can be mightily exercised by this fourth smooth stone. Godly leadership leads in thanksgiving from beginning to middle to end. And you know, uh, I have a great hero personally out of American history. Uh, My favorite president by miles is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln led like what Nehemiah talks about here. Did you know that the thing called Thanksgiving in the U.S. was kind of celebrated from early days with the meetings of the pilgrims and the Indians, and it kind of happened here and there as people remembered, but the guy who institutionalized it chose an amazing moment. In 1863, in the darkest days of the Civil War, brother killing brother on the battlefields of Pennsylvania and other places, And Abraham Lincoln said, I want everybody to lay down their arms because on the fourth, or on the the way he phrased it, on the final Thursday of November, we are going to establish a national Thanksgiving Day to remember that we serve and pray to the same God. And may he give us guidance to end this terrible conflict. Leadership. That's what it looks like. Amazing, amazing picture. You could contemplate this principle for the rest of your life. Fourth smooth stone, godly leadership, leads in thanksgiving from beginning to middle to end. So, got one more stone. Fifth stone. I want you to look with me quickly at the last verse of our section. And I want to do something that's just basic Bible study. I want to make an observation of the last verse of the passages that I've had the privilege and joy of teaching these last two weeks, and I want to compare it to the first verse. Okay? First couple verses. So here's the last verse. The last verse reads like this. Okay? It says, These served in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest and scribe. I want you to fix in your mind the phrase Nehemiah the governor, his name and his title. Turn with me now to are the chapters with the two verses with which we began our journey last week. Nehemiah 9:38 and 10:1, and I want you to listen for the same phrase, okay? 9:38. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Taking the bookends together, there is an incredibly profound leadership principle here. Godly leadership means being the first to take responsibility and the last to take credit. I want you to think about that for a second. Godly leadership is the first to take responsibility and the last to take credit. When it came time to put your pen in the ink well and sign your name to the document 
and say that you are putting your name forward on this document that says the declaration of dependence. You're going to depend on the Lord wholeheartedly. You're going to follow him fully all the days of your life. Nehemiah said, I am first to the post. Give me the pen. I'm signing. Name number one, Nehemiah the governor. First to take responsibility. And then in, in 11, and all through 11, 1 to 12, 26, he's spending the whole time talking about and lionizing all the others. And at the end, last two names, Nehemiah the governor, and then the precious priest and scribe named Ezra. What a cool, cool principle. Now I would submit to you there is a great example of this. The greatest leader who ever lived exemplified this principle, I think, above all others. See, Jesus Christ came into the world the first time to shoulder the greatest responsibility any man had ever taken on in all the history of mankind. And that was to face down the three greatest enemies of humanity, sin, Satan, and death. And if you notice throughout the Gospels, as Jesus is marching to the cross, he's healing people. There are miracles. People are rising from the dead. And Jesus Christ consistently always is telling people, shh, be quiet about this. And whenever he talked about where credit was due, he would say, I speak only as my Father gives me bidding. He pointed to the Father entirely as the one to whom the credit was due. And he came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many, right? His great articulation of his own leadership, heart. First to take responsibility, and he knew when he came that he was marching to a terrible death on the cross. And he knew that on that cross, his own father, with whom he had had perfect oneness since before the foundation of the world, way back into eternity, he knew that that fellowship would be broken on the day when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew that's where he was going. He had to take on the responsibility to crush sin, Satan, and death. And he did. And he beat them all at the cross and the resurrection. First to take responsibility. Last to take credit. You might think, Dorman, where are you getting the last to take credit part? Turn with me to one of the most precious and relatively unknown passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. Very hard to find, so I'm going to give you a few minutes. Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. Um, I got to tell you, it's the, third, it's the fourth to last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you can get to, Malak, get to Matthew, okay, then turn left. Malachi. Turn left again, Zechariah. Turn left again, a little tiny book called Haggai. And then turn left and you're in Zephaniah. Zephaniah ends with this remarkable prophetic vision of Jesus Christ as conquering king in Jerusalem. And I want you to read and consider the principle in Zephaniah 3.17. You want to talk about one hero of heroes. This is why he's my king and my hero. Look at this. The Lord, in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Now what's being pictured here is the triumphal 
march of the victorious conquering king through the city of Jerusalem. Remember the hosannas and all that kind of stuff? It's kind of a precursor to this. Now you would expect Jesus Christ crushing sin, Satan, and death to be in the chariot going, sweet, now finally I'm getting mine, man. Came as a servant before, now it's time to be king. Oh yeah. That's what you'd expect. Not this king. Look at the next phrase. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. Again, in case we miss it, Zephaniah repeats, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Picture the scene. The crowd is going, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in the chariot going, you, you, you. (laughs) What a scene. First to take responsibility, last to take credit. Even when it's so magnificently deserved. That's the fifth smooth stone of godly leadership. First to take responsibility. Last to take credit. You could contemplate this principle for the rest of your life. So, in sum, what are our five smooth stones? I'm asking you to remember these things and put them in your pouch the way David did. Because trust me, you will need these smooth stones sometime in your life, if not often. Five smooth stones. Number one, godly leadership begins with a blessing. It's just part of the beginning with blessing literature in the Bible that is so precious. Smooth stone number two. Second smooth stone of godly leadership. Godly leadership puts lordship before leadership, as the Lord himself did. Third smooth stone of godly leadership. Godly leadership honors every person. And honors them is more important than the leader. Fourth smooth stone of godly leadership is a godly leadership leads in thanksgiving from beginning to middle to end. What a cool thing to highlight. What a great way to lead. And then the fifth stone. Godly leadership means being the first to take responsibility and the last to take credit. And may the Lord so remind us that this is what this is supposed to look like. And by the Holy Spirit, if God calls us to be leaders or to aspire to leadership, may we, by the Holy Spirit, lead with this kind of heart and this kind of leadership because that gives life. And so much of the leadership today doesn't. But may we be different. And at Maudlin Road, may we be different. Amen and amen.